0: from tents to smoke machines. Judges across the country are getting creative and using unconventional methods to restart jury trials as the pandemic has caseloads piling up. Some judges, like the District of Maryland's Chief Judge, James Pradar, try to prepare jurors for the stark difference of a trial in the time of COVID with a video.
1: The courtrooms themselves have been modified so that jurors are no longer clustered together, but instead sit far apart from each other. Plexiglass screens have been erected in the courtrooms, separating those who are speaking from those who are listening. Jurors no longer assemble in cramped spaces.
0: Joining me is Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. Madison, 30 of the 94 federal district courts have issued orders allowing jury trials to resume. How do judges decide when to restart in-person jury trials?
1: It really depends on local factors, whether or not a court decides to do that. Typically, it's whether or not new cases of coronavirus have been going down for about two weeks or so is is a measurement a lot of courts are using. That was part of the recommendations from the administrative office of the court. And if they're in a situation where that's happening and they feel comfortable going forward with jury trials, they're summoning jurors. And the jury trials look a lot different than they did. You know, we're seeing courts publishing videos now where the judge or the chief judge will kind of walk jurors through the new process. Everyone's wearing masks. There's plexiglass dividers between different parts of the courtroom. The jury is now in more of a box than it was before. <laughs> the witness stand might have some plexiglass around it. In the Western District of Washington, I spoke to the chief judge there. They're not doing jury trials now, but whenever they open back up, the chief judge says he's going to use a smoke machine to see what the airflow looks like in the room to make sure that there aren't any you know pockets in the room that don't have a good airflow to make sure that the airborne virus is out of the air and, and away from people in the courtroom.
0: With plexiglass around a witness, it's hard to hand them a document But then again, they're not allowed to get close enough to hand them a document even.
1: Right. I mean, some of these in-person trials could come with their own difficulties. There's no perfect way to do a jury trial during the coronavirus. They're all going to look a little bit different, whether that's on Zoom or whether that's in person with masks and plexiglass.
0: Some judges are really getting creative. Tell us about the federal court in Dallas that's
1: considering holding an outdoor trial under a tent their chambers are not built for a pandemic. So this is something that's on the table. It would be at a local law school and jurors would potentially be outside under tents with something like this. Things like pollen could become a concern, but judges are just trying to get creative right now to get these jury trials off the ground. And Maddie, are there instances
0: where judges are following that two week guidance, but things fall apart
1: anyway? So there have been a few courts across the country that have gotten ready to restart jury trials. Numbers were going down and then numbers spiked again and they they couldn't go forward with those trials anymore. You know, one example was the, the Central District of California. They were preparing to go forward with jury trials a few months back. And in June, the numbers spiked and they had to, over the weekend, basically decide we can't go through with this anymore. I mean, that's just one example there. There have been courts across the country if you know, some of them even restarted jury trials. And when coronavirus cases in the area spiked, they had to go back to the postponement. So this is really part of that dance in and dance out that we're seeing with coronavirus. And in so many ways, with so many different industries, sometimes you're opening up and then when when numbers spike, you kind of have to go back to those initial protocols and and safety measures. Turning
0: to virtual trials for a moment, is Texas the only state that's had a full virtual trial in a criminal case?
1: So far, a state court in Texas had a full virtual criminal trial, though there have been a couple of different civil trials. One of them was in Texas, another one was in Florida on Zoom or another video conferencing platform.
0: What kind of problems did
1: they encounter? They were really trying to use a test case that would resolve itself quickly. So it lasted a few hours from start to finish. And some of the problems were things that they said that they predicted. It was technical glitches. One of the jurors who was selected, their connection dropped right before the trial was able to start. So they had to swap out that juror for an alternate. So, you know, some hiccups, something that the court says that they're probably going to try to learn from that experience Speaking of hiccups, jurors are
0: always told not to have any contact with the parties or their attorneys, but in a
1: California virtual trial, the jurors were caught talking to the plaintiff. How did that happen? Jurors and the plaintiff were kind of talking about how to set Zoom background while the counsel for the parties left them unattended during a bench conference. And the judge admonished the jury, instituted some new procedures, but you know ultimately concluded that there was no harm there but those are things that can potentially happen in virtual trials and there are some groups that have been preposed to virtual trials you know for that reason that they don't believe that it is a fair way to go about the process
0: Is Texas the only state that had a full virtual trial in a criminal case So the judges have to get the lawyers the litigants to consent is that difficult to do in many cases
1: yeah I mean so we we spoke to a few judges uh you know for for one of our stories that we were doing, and um it, one judge mentioned that it it was hard to get some of these parties to agree uh to a, a virtual trial um uh, I think that's gonna be a big a big hiccup i I have yet to speak to a judge that will go forward with a trial without that consent it's 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 a, a huge part of what allows these proceedings to go forward so um, you know, if the parties don't agree to to make sure that these things can be remote, um, that could also be a, a blockade from some proceedings going forward.
0: And you mentioned that even in one state, there can be differences in how the judges feel, how the chief judges feel about it. For example, in Texas.
1: Right. And that's where that's where a lot of those regional health conditions can come into play. So. If, if there are areas within that district that have had large spikes in coronavirus, that might uh, characterize where that district goes with some of its orders. Uh, so there can be differences, you know, like you said, from, from district to district.
0: Now, I was surprised that in northern Texas, they're planning to have a virtual trial, but it's not until next spring that. What is that going to do to the docket if even the virtual trials take so long to set up?
1: So that's definitely a concern for uh, for federal judges that the the coronavirus pandemic has really prevented jury trials from going forward. And you know, even if if courts are starting jury trials, it might not be uh, it might not be a large jury trial with with multiple defendants. Uh, it, it probably, uh you know the the simpler trials that could get done in a, in a short uh you know a short amount of time uh that don't doesn't require a lot of people to be in the room uh and, and so it is going to kick some of those cases down the line uh for a lot of courts and they're going to have to figure out how to you know do a, a large amount of jury trials at some point when that is going to happen is is a question that I think a lot of people are asking themselves right now in the judiciary. Uh, It doesn't really seem like there is too much of an end in sight. So um, it's a consideration I, I think a lot of federal judges are weighing right now.
0: How else are they moving the dockets besides jury trials? What else are they doing?
1: So, an interesting way that some federal judges are addressing this is by looking at the the rest of the the docket that that can be addressed. Um, they're they're making sure that they're they're kind of clearing their plate. So when that day that they can address jury trials comes, uh, they they don't have anything else, uh, or they can you know they can really turn their attention to that. So. Uh, for example, in, in the Southern District of Texas, the, the chief said, Lee Rosenthal said that that is something that she is, is doing. And, and she's focusing on, um, you know, some of the other aspects of the docket to make sure that, that when jury trials happen, they are prepared to be able to address them. I want to turn
0: for a second to another story you wrote. You wrote right. a story about how the relationship between judges and their clerks has necessarily changed and, and how judges are trying their best to to give the most to their clerks in this environment. Usually there is, you know, there's a lot of contact between a judge and clerk, whether it's on the Supreme Court level or, or a
1: state court level. So one of the hallmark aspects of uh, clerkship experience is the mentorship that that clerks get when they're with their judges and uh, a lot of that is is in person a lot of that is you know open door policies and you know being able to discuss cases and, and talk about them in chambers with the other clerks present and uh, of course during the pandemic that has changed a lot uh, so in in some courts, Judges are allowing clerks to come back in, uh, you know, maybe not every day, but some, a few days out of the week. And in other courts, uh, clerks are starting out completely remotely. We're, we're kind of getting to the end of a period here where the, um, cohort of clerks that, that started at this time last year is leaving and a, a new cohort is coming in. So, um, you know, that cohort that's leaving had, Six months of a normal clerkship, and are in, in six months of a not so normal clerkship when the when the pandemic hit in March, and the new class coming in is uh, kind of starting remotely. They're starting in a very different environment, uh, and and that's something that both judges and courts are trying to address right now is is how to onboard those new clerks and help them get that same experience or a similar experience.
0: What are some of the things that the judges are doing to try to replicate the experience?
1: So on the Ninth Circuit, um, Judge Margaret McKeown is doing socially distant picnics with her, her clerks. She's done something that she calls quarantini hours, um, but she's also spearheaded circuit-wide virtual brown bags for uh, the other clerks to make sure that they're connected with the rest of the court, that they're still learning, that they're still engaging with the other judges. And that's included things like, uh, you know, trivia and Q&As with uh, judges who just joined the court and even a uh, judge pet show. Um, so, you know, it's just something to kind of keep the experience, I think, light for for the clerks because, you know, she said they, they work very hard and, uh, you know, it's, it's an effort to kind of keep the morale up uh, during this time as well. Um, but, you know, aside from that, uh, you know, the fun aspect of it, judges are also just making time to talk to their clerks on on the phone um, to, you know, transition. Uh, again, as, as Judge McEwen said, uh, it, her open door policy has kind of become an open email and open phone policy. So judges are trying to find those creative ways to, to kind of keep that door open for clerks to get the mentorship and communicate with them the way they might have in the chambers.
0: Before I let you go, I have to ask you what a judge pet show is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Judge McEwen said that some of the judges were, you know, just introducing their their pets on on camera and just a way for, for people to connect and I think get to know each other a little bit better in in the Ninth Circuit. But, you know, where where once that might have been a happy hour or an in-court event, now it is a, a Zoom virtual pet show.
0: Thanks, Madison. That's Bloomberg Law Reporter Madison Alder. Columbia Law School has been keeping track of President Trump's executive orders rolling back environmental regulations at its Sabin Center for Climate Change Law through its Climate Deregulation Tracker. Now it's suggesting a new course for executive action under a possible Joe Biden administration to reverse Trump's 159 executive actions, perhaps a climate re-regulation tracker. My guest is environmental law expert Michael Gerard, the Sabin Center's director and founder. Tell us about the climate deregulation tracker that Columbia launched on January 20th of 2017.
2: Once Donald Trump was elected president, we knew that he would launch a campaign of trying to cut back on or repeal the environmental regulations. He had pledged that during his campaign. In his early speeches, made a clear plan to carry that forward. So on Inauguration Day, we launched the Climate Deregulation Tracker, which tries to keep track of all the efforts by the administration to roll back or repeal the environmental regulations, especially those dealing with climate change.
0: So in almost four years, you've logged 159 executive actions that fit that bill. Tell us about a few of the most concerning ones to you.
2: The greatest accomplishment of the Obama administration in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions was forging a deal with the auto industry to greatly improve fuel economy standards. And so they uh, they adopted regulations that doubled the fuel economy, uh, greatly reducing greenhouse gas emissions and saving consumers a lot of money in gasoline. Uh, so Trump took moves to halt that, to uh, stop the agreed-upon improvement in fuel economy. So that's one important measure. Another was to uh, cancel the effort to reduce the use of coal to generate electricity. Coal uh, power plants have been among the largest sources of greenhouse gases in the U.S. But uh, President Trump is a real fan of coal. And so he has moved um, in many different fronts to try to encourage rather than discourage coal, including canceling the Clean Power Plan, which already had some legal problems, and coming out with an immensely weaker one.
0: Have most of his policies been enacted through executive orders?
2: Many of them have, but many of the others required going through changes in the regulations. And those that required going through changes in the regulations, those that he couldn't do just by, unilaterally by the stroke of a pen, um, the, the agencies have done a very poor job. There are laws like the Administrative Procedure Act and the National Environmental Policy Act that require. Uh, detailed explanations of why you're changing your policy and, and and doing certain impact statements and so forth. And the Trump administration has accumulated a lousy record of doing that. So everything that they have done to try to roll back environmental regulations has been challenged in court just as soon as it's ripe for challenge. And uh, the administration has lost a large number of those cases, mostly because they just didn't follow the necessary procedures.
0: And in some of those cases where they've lost, are they redoing it and retracing their steps so that they are in line with the Administrative Procedures Act?
2: Yeah, for most of these actions, they are starting over. Uh, It takes a long time to do it right. And if President Trump is not reelected, they will have run out of of time. The the, the clock will have passed by the time they go final. But a few of them have um, run the multiple gauntlets and have become final.
0: Trump instituted this two-for-one deregulation that you had to get rid of two laws or regulations for every new one that you wanted to institute. When he deregulates in the area of the environment, does it always end up being detrimental to the environment?
2: There may have been some very small items that didn't get much attention that were uh, neutral or that were generally agreed upon as as steps in the right direction, but those are a few one. far between, and I don't believe that there were any in the climate change area that would fit that description.
0: When President Obama left office, he left this environmental legacy behind. Just broadly speaking, how much of that legacy has been destroyed during the Trump administration?
2: Well, a good deal of it has been uh, put on hold or reversed. Destroyed goes too far because depending on the outcome of the election, a lot of it uh, is likely to be revived. Uh, but he did go after a very large portion of Obama's environmental legacy.
0: Tell us about the new report that your center has come out with suggesting a course for a possible Biden administration.
2: So we came out with a uh, report called Climate Reregulation in a Biden Administration. And the idea is that if Vice President Biden uh, does win the election, he's going to want to restore many of those actions from the Obama-Biden administration and then go beyond that. And so what we tried to do was to uh, go through all of the climate-related actions that uh, Trump had taken to move back on what Obama had done, figure out how to put them back in place and move beyond. But often they involve fairly complicated uh, procedures by different agencies. So we tried to lay it all out as a roadmap for what the next administration might do.
0: If everything in this report were followed, would that bring us back to the place we were pre-Trump, or would it put us in an even better place?
2: It would put us in a somewhat better uh, state, but not nearly good enough. At the end of the Obama administration, considerable progress had been made on the fighting climate change, but a lot more needed to be done. So this creates the foundation, but it's not good enough to just put us back to 2016. We need to move a lot further than that.
0: So now of the 159 executive actions that you've logged, are those easy enough to reverse?
2: Well, some of them, like the executive orders or the revocation of the prior executive orders, can be done by the stroke of a pen. Others are more complicated because they have to go through these same processes, the Administrative Procedure Act and the National Environmental Policy Act and so forth, uh, that are required for any change in regulation. So some of them can be done on day one. Some of them uh, would will require considerably longer.
0: Let's talk about some of the recommendations. One is rejoin the Paris Agreement. So tell us why that's important and what it would take.
2: Well, that's about the easiest one. If Biden becomes president and he writes a letter to the uh, UN saying that uh, the U.S. is uh, is rejoining. Uh, the U.S. will be accepted back with open arms. There's like a 30-day waiting period, but there's nothing to it. But the the Paris Agreement signified international agreement consensus. Every country in the world signed on to that. Uh, the, the U.S. is the only country to have formally withdrawn from it. But the U.S. was historically the largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Uh, overtaken by China, but it's now the second largest, but with a much higher per capita uh, emission. So the U.S. withdrawal from Paris and abandonment of climate action gives all the other countries an excuse not to act. They say, "Why, if the biggest polluter isn't acting, why should we?" So uh, rejoining Paris has uh, tremendous symbolic importance. Uh, Paris wasn't really binding in many ways, but it, it, it symbolized that the U.S. was part of the global effort to fight climate change.
0: Another thing you want to do is begin reinstating greenhouse gas emission standards on vehicles. Have some vehicles kept the greenhouse gas standards because it's just better for them to sell their cars as well?
2: Yeah, well, several of the automakers entered into an agreement with California for slightly modifying, but basically continuing what the prior standards were. And so that is terrific. Um, other automakers didn't do that. One problem with these standards is the automakers need to know several years in advance what kind of cars they need to build because they need to re- retool their plants. And so this whole uncertainty over the, uh, what standards apply has really been a major problem for the automakers trying to figure out what kind of cars to make. But, you know, all the major automakers had agreed to this, uh, these tighter standards in 2010, and the fact that several of them signed on to continuation of it shows that they're absolutely technically feasible.
0: Another suggestion is to start to reverse the affordable clean energy rule. So you'll have to explain the affordable clean energy rule.
2: So uh, under Obama, they adopted the Clean Power Plan, which was aimed at redu- mostly at reducing uh, use of coal to make electricity. The Clean Power Plan was stayed by the Supreme Court in early 2016, uh, pending litigation, and that litigation still hasn't been resolved. The affordable clean energy rule, as they call it, uh, is a very, very pale substitute for the Clean Power Plan. It's, It's what the Trump administration put in place instead of the Clean Power Plan, but it would only... Uh, achieve a fraction of its results. And so we need something new. Uh, They probably won't just simply reenact the Clean Power Plan uh, because it has some legal issues, but I think they're going to try to move beyond.
0: Has Joe Biden committed to most of the things that you are suggesting in your report?
2: Well, he has committed to vigorous action on climate change and to a um, net zero emission economy by 2050 with various interim targets. Uh, He's said that he'll rejoin the Paris Agreement, and he's spoken about a great deal of these actions. He hasn't yet gotten down to the level of specificity in our report. Uh, But the overall thrust of it, uh, reviving the regulations of the Obama-Biden era and moving beyond it are are certainly something that he is committed to.
0: Will it take him four years if he's elected to get through these, to reverse it?
2: It shouldn't take four years to do all of this, but it, it, some of them are, you know, can be done, they say, on day one. Others will take months or a year or two. But ultimately, what, what is really needed on climate change is legislation. And the big question, can legislation happen? If the Senate flips, if we have Democratic control, both in the House and the Senate, that might well happen then. It wouldn't surprise me if President Biden tries to push for that. I think everybody agrees that the best solution would be for Congress to act and not rely solely on presidential authority.
0: The EPA right now is not like the EPA in the Obama administration, obviously. It's headed by a lobbyist. Have a lot of people left the agencies like the EPA so that it's going to be difficult to staff up again?
2: Uh, That's going to be a challenge. Um, there has certainly been something of a brain drain and very little of a brain intake. Most of the bright young people who are thinking about working in the, for government and the environment over the last uh, four years have gone into state government rather than EPA. But there are a lot of other dedicated uh, people who are still at EPA, some of them who are sort of hanging on by their fingernails based on what the election is. So it'll be a challenge, but I don't think it's insuperable for EPA and the other environmental uh, agencies to get back to speed.
0: You have something for Biden to sign on his first day in office if he wins election? What is that?
2: Well, we put in a a draft executive order um, that he could sign on the first day. You know, I'm sure others are working on other drafts, but I think that if and when Biden takes office, there will be pieces of paper on his desk ready to be signed.
0: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Michael Gerard, founder and director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. Music.